We are in Romans chapter 9 this week. We are out of Romans 8 after being there for, I think, five weeks or so. We are in Romans 9, moving through this wonderful letter, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And as you're turning there, I did want to say this week we're kind of starting somewhat of a mini-series within this broader series that we've called God is for us. This mini-series is three chapters of Romans, 9, 10, and 11. And some of the theme of this series through these chapters is the, is, this is not an official title, but it's the burden of the gospel is the mini-series title. And as with that said, why don't I pray before I say anything more? God, we're grateful again to be able to gather as your people, and we're thankful for this opportunity to uh, look at and study your word. As your people, we have this conviction that it's your word that transforms and, and changes us. It, it reveals to us your plan and will for our lives, and it reveals who you are, God, more importantly, and, and what it is that you're doing in this world and, and how you are working all things out for good, just as we were singing a moment ago, and, and yet at the same time, how we get to participate in that as your people. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning our eyes would be uh, open to see the wondrous truths from your word. I pray that our understanding of you and, and your calling on our lives would expand and, and grow in our time together and, and that our zeal to be used by you in this world would also grow as well. And we pray all these things to the end of your glory, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So that theme, God is for us, is actually where we ended off last week in chapter 8, where Paul declares with this intense passion and joy the blessings of the gospel, remember that, the blessings of the gospel to the one who believes. And one of the climactic statements that Paul made, if you were here with us last week, or if you weren't, you can just look back in your Bible and see that Paul wrote these amazing words, if God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, this is an incredible statement to make knowing where we have been, both in the letter and in our own personal lives, right? We know from the letter that formally God was against you because of your sin, as you were against him because of your sin. This is where we were formerly. So again, now Paul's making this announcement. It's incredible, this blessing of the gospel. Because of what God has done on your behalf, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that same God who was once against you is now for you. And if he is for you, Paul says, then who in all the world, in all of creation, could possibly come against you? And of course, the rhetorical nature of that question assumes the answer is no one. Nobody can be against you if God is for you. This, of course, is one of those great blessings that we as Christians hold on to dearly and has been the focus of this series. But Paul listed another great blessing of the gospel at the end of chapter 8 when he wrote that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth could ever tear one of his chosen people from his loving hands, is the point Paul is, has made. 
One of the greatest blessings of the gospel is the promise that he who began a good work in you will finish it. Here it is. I've been wondering, how am I going to bring the painting of this building as a preaching point into the sermon? And there it is. Oh, off my notes. He who began a good, this is not, this is obviously not completed, right? The building still needs to be painted more. Hopefully it'll be painted more this week. But unlike the paint job currently, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. These are, again, just a few of the great blessings of the gospel that is ours through faith. And for this reason, Christians love Romans chapter 8. We love this chapter. Why? Because we love blessings, We love talking about all of the things that God has done for us and all of the things that we enjoy as children of God. However, and this is where we're moving now into Romans chapter 9, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning and throughout the next few chapters. For the person who has truly had their hearts changed by the grace of God that is found in the gospel message, the exhilaration, the exhilaration that comes at the thought of those blessings should at the same time create an intense and fierce burden. This is the thought we're going to cover over the next few weeks. And before we read our text this morning, I just want us to think about that even harder. Let me read it again. For the person who has truly had their hearts changed by the grace of God that is found in the gospel message, the exhilaration that comes from those blessings that we hold on to so dearly should at the same time create an intense burden in the gospel. Why don't we go ahead and read just verses 1 through 5 of Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, and to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, it's common for most people when they experience something truly amazing, something wonderful, that as they are intensely enjoying the moment of that experience, their minds quickly turn to think about someone that they wished was there with them to enjoy that experience also. You may hear someone say, at a wedding, for example, that ceremony was so beautiful, I just wish so-and-so was here with us to see it. And on some level, this is what Paul is describing what he's experiencing. He just finished, again, this exquisite explanation of the blessings that belong to those who possess faith in Christ and who believe in the gospel story, but no sooner does Paul relish in those blessings, does his mind drift to think about those who are not there to experience those blessings with him. And it is this thought that creates this intense anguish within him, a burden that flows 
from those same gospel blessings. Only this time, the blessings that flow from faith in the gospel, now he's seeing this burden is on those who have rejected this gospel. His sorrow over people's unbelief and inevitable fate is so strong that kind of like a parent toward their child who is suffering would say, Paul says, I would gladly take their place if I could. And if you're a parent, you know how that is when your child is suffering or going through a hardship. You think, I would gladly jump into their skin and let them jump into mine. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, I would gladly exchange all of those blessings I've listed in Romans 8 and really all the way back to chapter 5, and then suffer, think about this, suffer the eternal torment in hell, separated from God, if it meant that the lost may be saved. That's how heavy his burden is for them. Interestingly, the same sentiment was made by Moses in Exodus chapter 32 about the children of Israel. He says, but now, God, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Of course, we know that's not how it works. Just like a parent can't take the place of their child who is suffering, though oftentimes we wish we could, neither Moses nor Paul nor anyone else can substitute their life, their soul, for someone else's. And yet, the amazing truth about that is that that's exactly what God did for us in Christ. His life substituted for ours. He suffered the pains of of sin and death and hell in our place so that we might be saved through Him. The only one capable to fulfill that office of substitute is Christ and Christ alone. This is what makes the Christian gospel so amazing. Nevertheless, though we can't exchange our soul for someone else's, like Paul is pleading for here or asking for here, the burden of the lost ought to be there for every Christian believer who knows the blessings of salvation. This is Paul's sorrow. This is his grief in the gospel. And again, it's not so much in the gospel itself, but in the fact that he knows some people have rejected this gospel. His grief also, though, at this juncture, it's not just for anyone, right? No, his burden is not for every lost person out there. That's going to come in a, a couple later chapters. His burden here is for a particular demographic of people, and it's his own people, the Jewish people. He writes again in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of everyone. No, he says, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. Now, understand, this isn't just like patriotism or nationalism. This is a love beyond any idea or culture or way of life. This was a love for his family. He was a proud and passionate Israelite, a Jewish person. He would write of himself in Philippians 3 these words, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. Paul was passionate about his belonging to the covenant people of God before he came to faith in Jesus, and even after his conversion, he's still passionate about it. In fact, this is a significant reason why Paul is writing this letter to begin with to the church in Rome. 
You may remember what I mentioned a few months ago back when we started this series in Romans, that the historical context, those to whom were the initial listeners or readers of this letter, they were in Rome, they were the house churches in Rome, and there were two groups really. There were Jews and Gentiles. Both were believers, but completely different backgrounds and cultures. And at that time, the Jewish believers, well, really all Jews, had been kicked out of Rome. And because there was a disagreement, there was all this infighting going on about this Messiah. And so the Roman leadership, the emperor just said, all of you get out and kicked them all out of Rome. Well, 15 years had passed. Paul's writing this letter as now all of those Jews are starting to come back into Rome, including the Jewish Christians. They were coming back and all of this sounds great, however, there was a problem. Everything had changed. Now, or prior, the church had been sort of mixed together of Jew and Gentile believers and, and mostly Jewish believers, but now 15 years had gone by, the Jews are coming back, and they're coming back into churches that are different. They're changed. They're filled with mostly Gentiles and Gentiles serving in leadership in those churches, and they're wondering how can we mix back in together? They were like oil and vinegar. They were struggling to come together. Again, and so Paul's great concern in this letter, among many things, is to help the Jewish believers who are coming back see that God has had always planned and purposed to elect and graft in Gentiles into His covenant family, that the Jews were to be a light unto the nations not brag about their great status before the nations. That was not the point, but to show their opportunity to come and join in as well. So they should be glad now to see that so many Gentiles, non-Jewish people, had come to faith in Christ, who is God over all. Paul wanted them, his Jewish countrymen, to see this. This is why he's writing this letter. While at the same time, Paul needed to make a case to the Gentile believers in the church that their faith was not something new, but they stand on the shoulders of giants, as it were, in God's chosen people, Israel. They needed one another. This is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to reconcile these two groups under the gospel. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. He says that salvation is to the Jew first because it was to them that the initial promise of the gospel came prior to it going out to the Gentiles. So the context remind us here that Paul is trying to bring these two groups together under the gospel. But back to our point, Paul isn't just burdened for the lost in general. Again, we'll get there. Who have yet to come to faith in Christ but have rejected Christ. His burden begins with his own people, and he's going to tell us why here in a moment, why he is so burdened for them. But before I lose the moment of obvious application for us, let us ask ourselves, are you burdened for your own who are lost? I'll ask that again. Are you burdened for your own who are lost? And, and I encourage you to not respond too quickly to that question, but to really think about it. And, and one way to diagnose your own personal answer to that question would be this. Do you pray regularly, persistently, enduringly for the salvation of those that you know 
Obviously, we can pray for the lost all over the world. We should do that. But do you pray for the people you know? Are you burdened enough? Maybe this is a little bit closer to the nerve. Are you burdened enough to get over yourself and share the gospel with someone you know and love that you have a relationship with who does not yet know Christ? People often wonder, what is the motivation for Christian evangelism? And, and to be honest, there's all kinds of answers to that question, and we'll look at some of those answers over the next few weeks. But I'll start where Paul starts. Our motivation comes from our love for Christ and our love for the lost. That's the beginning of it. Evangelism has to begin with our love for Christ in response to His love for us because it is that blessing of salvation. All the things that we've been relishing in over the last few chapters of Romans chapter 8, and all the way down to chapter 5, that creates this burden to then talk about that blessing and that salvation to those who don't have it. We want people to know the Christ that we have come to know, that we have come to experience His love and His blessings and His promises. We want people to know this same Christ because we love Him, because He has loved us. But we also ought to love people. And maybe you're saying, you know what, Aaron, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really love people. (laughs) People are hard. People are difficult. People are rough around the edges. I'm rough around the edges, right? maybe Maybe you're thinking that. Well, maybe a good place to start is where Paul starts, with those you already have a relationship with, just as Paul did. Again, Paul's burden of the gospel began with his own people. But Why? Was it just because they shared the same things in common? Those are oftentimes the people we love, right? The people that they sh- we share the same interests, we share the same politics, we share the same uh, sports teams, whatever it is. We love those people. It's all the other people that we sort of despise, right? No, it goes different or deeper than that. The reason why he was so burdened for them was because it was to them that God's blessings were originally poured out. Look, look at again what he writes in verse 4 and 5. They're they're Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, I mean, he's just bringing it high here. From the race, their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. What is Paul saying here? It is a powerful statement. Essentially, what Paul is doing, he's summarizing all the blessings of the Jewish people through a survey of the Old Testament, from the journeys of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to the saving of his people in Egypt and the delivering of them from Egypt through Moses to the giving of the law to the building of the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God would dwell with his people and they could worship him and know him to the giving of the law to the giving of his word, including the greatest promise of all, that through their race, through their people, according to the flesh, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come. And amazingly, Paul writes here this clearest statement on the divinity of Christ in the entire New Testament. You might, may want to write that down, that it is this Christ who is God over all. There is no confusion in Paul's theology as to who Jesus is. He is God over all, yet a Jew in the flesh. Isn't that interesting? So why, again, is Paul so burdened for his kinsmen? It isn't because they share the same blood. 
though that's certainly true, it is because they shared those same original blessings. His burden flows from the fact that they had the best opportunity, the greatest privilege of all. But instead of trusting in Jesus, their Messiah, who is God over all, they disobeyed, they rebelled. We read in the Old Testament that they broke the covenant God made with them. And because of that, the curse of their disobedience fell upon them and they were taken off into exile and they became to God as the same as the other nations. And the worst of them all, again, they rejected Jesus, had him nailed to a Roman cross because he was not the savior that they wanted, that they wanted to see. I think perhaps the best way most of us can understand the pain that Paul is experiencing here, it would be like a Christian parent who they raise their child from, from birth in the church and, and they experience all of these things with them. They, they teach them to know Christ and they teach them the word and all of these things. But when they get to adulthood, they reject the faith. That's so painful because of their privileged heritage in knowing Christ as a, as a child and, and tasting these things and yet rejecting it. Paul loved Christ and he loved his fellow Israelites. And his burden for them was based on the blessings he knew for himself by faith, but also knew they had failed to achieve through their unbelief and disobedience. The initial burden Paul had, and hopefully we all have as Christians, was for the lost. Though this was particularly painful because he had a burden for the Jewish people, his countrymen in the flesh. Again, Inevitably, this creates this burden that needs to be addressed. But there's another burden that's created here. And even if it can't be fully solved in our human minds, there's another burden, which is this. It's really a question, why are all the Israelites not saved? Why are all the Israelites not saved? You see, throughout Paul's letter, he has meticulously answered some of these really deep theological questions that people often ask in regard to God's work and salvation. And by the time we get to chapter 8, Paul's like, I'm done answering all of your questions. Now I'm just here to declare the amazing blessings of those who have faith in Christ. All arguments are shut up and only blessings pronounced. However, there's one lingering pebble in Paul's sandal. He didn't wear shoes. And maybe there was a pebble in the sandal of some of his readers too, which is this. Okay, Paul, at the end of chapter 8, you said, nothing can separate us from God's love now, but what are we to make of God's love toward the Israelites who didn't believe and who don't believe and who, in fact, rejected clearly? And their question was this. Can this God, who you say was also the God of the Jews, is also the God of this salvation, can this God be trusted now? Can this gospel be trusted now? And the answer to this very important question may surprise you, though it shouldn't, just as it may have surprised them, the, the answer that Paul gives, though again, it shouldn't. And this is where we're going to continue on in the text. Let's look at verse 6 down to verse 13. But, Paul says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all 
who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. In other words, because they share his same blood. But, and he's quoting from the Old Testament, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means, in verse 8, that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. We're going to stop there this week, but now go home and think about that. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about it for a moment. If the first section that we talked about could be titled maybe the, the, the burden of personal grief over the lost, this section maybe could be called the, the burden of clarity, the burden of clarity. I was just last night looking at some uh, old clips from that movie, I think it's A Few Good Men, when uh, Jack Nicholson has, has the great line, you can't handle the truth. Such a great, great line. You can tell right away in verse 6 that Paul anticipates the objection. I've already mentioned. Is what you are saying then, Paul, is that God's word in the past to his people in the past, Israel, hit the apple of his eye, it doesn't mean that his word failed because they failed to believe. Is that what you're saying? And his answer, of course, is no. We know God's word doesn't fail because God himself does not fail. And to that response, his objector may say, okay, Paul, I'm listening. We're all ready to hear how you're going to explain the fact that the vast majority of Jews do not believe and have rejected the Messiah. Or to say it more plainly, how come the elect of God are not saved then? And he gives the answer. The thesis he provides to this inevitable problem is stated at the end of verse 6. The answer is that not all who are descended from Israel as, as a race belong to Israel as a spiritual title. To put it another way, not all who think they are Israel are actually Israel. Now, certainly that statement was quite shocking, and we're going to talk about the examples Paul gives to support that thesis, but that statement should not have been a shock since Paul has already introduced this idea back in chapter 3, verse 1, with another set of rhetorical questions. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. The question is this, what advantage then is being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul responds, well, much in every way, as he says here. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had this privileged status. And then he says the question, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God. This is kind of what Paul's coming back to. And he says, by no means, let God be true, though everyone be a liar. So again, this was an earlier discussion. And it had relevance. Paul brought it up back then. 
But as you can see, he did not fully tease it out because he knew he was going to come back to it later on in chapter 9 under another context and topic and deal with it more fully here. And that's where we're at in Romans 9, under this burden of the gospel. And what you'll notice is that Paul makes a distinction for his answer between a descendant of Israel, that is a a flesh and blood of Israel, and a person who belongs to Israel by sharing the same faith and promise that Israel had. And this is a very important distinction. And to help his questioner understand, Paul gives an example from the life of Abraham, their earliest patriarch. He says this, hey, God's promise to Abraham that through his offspring, he would bless the nations. And, and in the original language, offspring is in the singular, not in the plural. So through his offspring, singular, it wasn't made to all Abraham's children, but specifically concerning Isaac, of which the promise was fully realized later on in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, every Jew in the room hearing that would have understood that example and readily accepted it. Okay, we understood that God chose Isaac over all of his other children. However, the issue the person must have had when they were asking this question is that their understanding of what it means to belong to the people of God was misguided and misinformed. And Paul addresses that bad theology really here, that just because someone is born into a certain family, in this case, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites, that doesn't guarantee you now salvation just because someone's blood flows into your veins or because you share the same heritage or or culture or last name or family line or any of these things. And where earlier in the letter, Paul addressed the issue in regard to the need for that person to have their own personal faith, right? As a child, you can't say, oh yeah, my uncle, he was a Christian. Actually, he was a pastor, so me and God are good. It doesn't work that way, and Paul has already addressed that. The argument, though, being made here is that the ultimate burden of the gospel is not on a person's demonstration of faith, not on you or me, but first and foremost on the God who elects to salvation. This is what Paul is saying. And Paul gives two illustrations. He says, just as Sarah couldn't control when or if she was going to have a son, but trusted in God's will for her life. And then he references Rebecca, who was pregnant with twin boys. And though Isaac really wanted Esau, his son, to be the heir of his future and posterity and God's promises, God made his own choice as to whom he would elect. It was Jacob and not Esau. And Paul interprets that story for us in verse 11 and 12. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. That's an important distinction. But he puts this little brackets in there. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older older will serve the younger. So do you understand what Paul's saying here? What he's saying is that God chose Jacob and not Esau, not because of anything in them. It wasn't because he looked into the future and saw the goodness of Jacob and the badness of Esau. In fact, when we were going through Genesis as a church, uh, well, this would have been, I guess, two years ago now, and you read their stories, Jacob was a dodgy character. I mean, he was odd. 
You would certainly think God would not choose this guy because of who he is. In fact, it wasn't based, again, on God looking into the future and seeing who's good and who's bad. And it wasn't God looking into the future and saying, well, who's going to believe and who's going to not believe? Again, he says here that God, before they were even born, before they had an opportunity to do anything, good or bad, believe or not believe, God chose them. He chose Jacob. So the question is, well, then what was the basis or the reason for his electing one and not the other? And the answer Paul gives is this, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, that answer for some is insufficient. It, it, it leaves a level of mystery, and it probably adds more questions. And in fact, we're going to get to those questions next week. Paul didn't say, and I didn't say, that that answer will solve all of the riddles of the Rubik's Cube of, of election and God's choosing some and not others. But in reality, and, and though that can be unsettling for some, it should not be unsettling for any of us who claim to know Christ by faith. Because the burden of clarity from the gospel is this, though many believe, not everyone does, which again is great cause for sorrow, but the other burden of clarity that should be a relief is that God doesn't choose anyone based on what they bring to the table. He didn't choose you or He didn't choose me. He doesn't choose anyone to His salvation because of what they bring to the table. Because if that were the case, we'd all be in trouble. We'd all be in trouble. So again, that answer, though unsettling to some because it doesn't fully answer all the riddles, it should be very comforting to you. But there's another burden of the gospel mentioned here that we're just going to have to live with, and it's, it's just that, which is that the electing purposes of God remain a mystery to us, and we don't like mysteries. We want the solved mysteries, right? We have no idea why God chooses some and not others, at least not in any specific way, though we'll see how Paul deals with that issue again next week. But here is the point, the overall point. We can get lost in the weeds of election and how all that works. But here's the point that Paul is making that I really hope you hear. God is faithful to His Word, to His promises, to His people, because His promises in the past were never to this broad group of people, though they wanted it to be that way. It was to the spiritual Israel, that is, those who walk by faith and obedience to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Throughout Israel's history, there was this point of contention, but the running theme through it all was this idea, and maybe you've heard of this, this idea of the remnant, that within the tribes of Israel, there was always this much smaller, true Israel, whom God Himself had preserved for Himself to be a remnant, even when the rest of all of the nations, all of the tribes of Israel were all disobeying, they were all going off into exile, they were all unfaithful, God's saying, I will preserve for Myself a remnant of Israel within Israel who will not bow the knee, who will not worship other gods. The answer is that you can trust the promises of God, because this is the issue Paul is trying to respond to here that you can trust the promises of God in the gospel now, today, because God's promises to Israel back then in the past remain true to Israel now. That is the true Israel, the Israel 
of faith because they were always going to be fulfilled in this remnant, not in a race, not in a nation, but in the spiritual Israel. Now, there are more questions that arise from this discussion. Again, Paul's only given us his thesis. Pretty soon, he's going to explain more, and we're going to get back to that next week. So, hopefully, you come back then. We'll talk about it. But with that, what we've covered so far, we need to take some things away this morning. And I do want to reiterate what I talked about in the beginning, and it's that burden of the gospel in reaching the lost. The heartbeat of every Christian longs to see the lost saved. And we should be praying, we should be sharing, we should be modeling and inviting people to believe in the gospel so that they too can share the benefits of salvation. After all, think about this. Don't forget you're here because someone prayed for you, because someone cared enough about you to talk to you about Jesus. They loved you enough to tell you about the hope that you can have through faith in Christ and the inevitable fate if you don't. Someone loved and cared for you enough to do that for you. We are called to do the same for others. And as you share with people, you can be confident and clear because you know, man, it's not based on how good I share the gospel. Honestly, we're all terrible at it. Let's just admit that, okay? But God is able to take our brokenness, our inabilities, and all of those things and work through that even still. God is able to work even in our inability. But in regard to election, what I will say at this initial point of this discussion, as a point of application, I'll just quote from 2 Peter 1 and the way he applies election. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, you're a Christian. You claim to be a Christian, but don't be presumptuous as the Israelites often were, in thinking, yeah, I have time, or, or I'm good because I do this thing, I serve in this way, I give in this way, or I've done that thing in the past. He's saying, listen, make sure that you truly are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. We don't understand the mystery of God's election, but you know what? It doesn't matter at the end of the day who is and who isn't saved for us to know those things. What matters is what we know to do, which is to trust in Christ by faith, to commit our lives to Him as Lord and Savior. Do that, leave the rest to God who is faithful to His promises, to His people forever, and He can be trusted. Why don't we pray, and then Sean will come up and lead us uh, in a time of communion together. God, we're just so thankful for uh, Your Word and that our faith is built on precious, precious promises that do not fail. That promise that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ is true and everlasting, and we can rest in that promise that flows to us from the gospel. We have to admit that there are things about our salvation and about your redemptive plan that, that are truly a mystery to us. But like we talked about a couple weeks ago, we're going to rest in the things that we know, and we're not going to worry about the things that are left a mystery to us but are held in your eternal counsel. But God, we do in this moment, we pray for the loss that we know 
We pray, we, have, we want to have a burden like Paul had for the lost. We pray for our family members who do not know Christ yet. We pray for our neighbors, those that we work with. We pray that they would come to know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And I pray, God, that you would use us, both individually and this church, to be a beacon and a light for the gospel in this community. And we pray that you would use us to share that good news and that people would come to salvation and experience those blessings that we enjoy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.